0: And we'll take our title from the first verse, where it's verse 33, where the psalmist writes, Teach me, O Lord, Thy way, or the way of Thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. The word keep means to guard with fidelity, faithfulness, continually. And so when we try to title each one of these stanzas, we look for some particular interest or emphasis that the psalmist will make, usually in the first or second verse, although we see repeated phrases throughout Psalm 119, so we'll focus our attention on the word keep and we'll entitle it, The Word of God Keeps Us. The Word of God Guards Us. The Word of God Keeps Us. First note, That the Word of God keeps us unto the end. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Thy statutes, and I will keep it, the statutes, unto the end. The Word of God includes the statutes, the law, the precepts, the judgments, all the repeated words we see in Psalm 119. And so uh, the psalmist expects God to teach him in such a way that he'll keep it, preserve it, guard it with fidelity... That just means to continue unto the end. Now the word end can mean a few things. The root word is the word heel. This is the word used for Jacob when he got his famous name, Jacob, or supplanter. He grabbed his brother by the heel. It can mean the lowest part, the extremities of your body, like the heel. Of course, we know Esau said Jacob was rightly named Jacob a supplanter because he supplanted him, replaced him two times. The birthright he stole and the blessing he got by trickery. Leads us to the next nuance. Not only heel, to grab the heel, the heel, the lowest extremity, could mean fully or completely. It means consequence or reward. Why did Jacob grab him by the heel? He was after a reward. The reward of the birthright, the reward of the blessing. It's used as reward in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great end. But he uses the word what? Reward. The consequence, the result, the reward is great. It's used as a reward, but here, end... Means with regard to time. He will keep it. He will stay in it. He will be preserved by the word unto the end of time or your life or until God calls you home. And of course, those nuances kind of fit together, don't they? Because when you're keeping it to the end, what is at the end? What is the result of keeping by the preserving grace of God it is the reward it is the final end it is the chief end for which you were created it is the gain that awaits us and so both of these words can be seen or nuances in the word end so the psalmist is saying there's no off-ramp for him there's no exit he's going to take there's no easier path there's no alternative way he aims By the teaching of God, to keep it, to observe it, to stay with it unto the end. And that's the way it must be with you and I this morning. Have you committed to the Word of God? Is the Word of God such to you that you want to keep it as your gain, as your treasure, and keep it unto the end? Well, that leads us to the next thing then. The Word of God keeps us by teaching us. How is he going to keep it to the end? Teach me, Lord, thy statutes, and I will keep it to the end. So he's dependent upon God. Give me understanding, he would say in verse 34, and I shall keep thy law, yea, I shall observe it. He uses the word keep again, then he adds the word observe, which means to do what it says. So we're not just staying with it as a book to carry with us, we're staying with it in order that we may Keep it. Observe it. So notice he says, God teach me and God give me understanding. The result will be He will keep it. So the Word of God teaches us. Now the psalmist here sees him sort of as a student enrolled in the divine school of God. You know, anytime you enroll in a school, like university, a human institution, or a trade school of some kind... The first thing you're given is a textbook or textbooks. So when I was younger, we didn't have backpacks or nobody thought about it yet. So the guys carried all their textbooks on the hip. Girls carried them close to the chest. You never did that as a guy. Always on the hip. Sometimes you carry four or five books, even in college. It's pretty heavy. Even your backpacks a day. that's pretty heavy gear. The expectation in a human institution is... You bring your textbook. You open your textbook, and the instructor is going to instruct you from the textbook. Do you bring your textbook to class each Sunday? Now, God has made it so easy. See, He's put 66 books in a singular book. You can carry it in one hand, you can carry it on your hip. He's even made it easier for you in this culture because you have it on a phone. You can slip it in your back pocket. You can put it in your coat pocket. Do you bring your textbook? Do you look at your textbook? Now God is the professor. God's going to teach. God's going to give you understanding. But He means to do it by means of this textbook. So you're not going to keep it to the end if you don't know what the textbook says and you're not observing what the textbook says. Secondly, all human institutions Demand, expect, and require homework. I used to get in my room around the kitchen table, beat my head against the table. Frustration. What was that teacher talking about? This makes no sense. See? Hence why the psalmist says, Teach me, Lord. Give me understanding. So what's he doing when he makes that request? And we've seen this request already in Psalm 119. He's bringing his eyes to the book, to the textbook. And then he's going to follow up from what God taught him in a sermon. And he's going to do homework and look at it and examine it. And then he's going to do what? What do you do in a human university? Then your expectation, at least that's the expectation. It's waning and not as... Uh, relevant today in human universities, but the expectation is you will take what you have learned and apply it for the rest of your life in a thing called a career. I mean, some part of it, I know. You get frustrated with those subjects. We think, I'll never use this. But the ones you're going to use, they are with you unto the end. Isn't it strange that in all human universities... The expectation is a textbook and homework and testing to see if you know we kind of think God is His standards are not quite as high. I mean, don't worry about the textbook. Don't dare do any homework. And you'd be offended if somebody asked you what you learned from the sermon or what you're getting out of the textbook. Oh, that's private. That's private. Why are God's standards... Any less than human universities. So the implication is, God's going to teach you, God's going to give you understanding as you take the textbook, follow the text, read the text, see what's in the text, understand the text as God graciously gives it to you, apply the text, and then use the text for the rest of your life. Until the end. God is our teacher. God gives us understanding. But notice he says, the statutes and the law. So, you can't keep to the end what you don't know. And the way we know, the way we get understanding by grace is through God's textbook, enrolled in the divine school of God that He has all of His children in. Also, He teaches us to wholly depend on Him. Part of this teaching is we're, we're dependent on Him for the teaching and understanding. You can tell by this psalm and Psalm 119 and many of the other psalms that the psalmist is aware of the impotency of his own free will to resist temptations and to bring into action the principle of grace in his life. How do you know that? Listen to his words. Teach me. Give me, make me, incline me, turn me, turn me away, quicken me, revive me. That would make no sense if the psalmist had an independent free will. Oh, sometimes men will argue the freedom of the will to the point that they argue themselves right out of the grace of God. When the will is in a state of sin and death, we are not free to spiritual good and we are not free to convert ourselves. But then when converted, we are free to do spiritually good things. How? As God is decisive in inclining us to it. We are responsible for being willing, but the psalmist understands the impotency of his free will independent of God. And therefore he cries out, which we should too. Lord, teach me, give me, make me, incline me, turn me, quicken me. That makes no sense if his will is absolutely free. The only will that is absolutely free is the divine will because no one helps him, no one assists him, no one inclines him, no one teaches him. Your will is not free in the absolute sense. So what does he say? He wants to wholly depend on God, so he asks God to do what God aims to do, and then he puts his will in a position to receive that inclining grace. And what is that position? The Word of God that keeps us. In a state of glory, the will will be free with no remaining corruptions of the sin, no inclination toward evil whatsoever. But now we are still inclined at times in that direction, aren't we? So he's wholly dependent on God to teach him and to give him understanding and to incline him. And yet he goes to the place where God will incline his heart. And that is the gracious textbook in the divine school called grace. But then note, he is teaching... God is teaching, giving him understanding with a whole heart. Verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. And the point is this. A half heart will not make it to the end. A half hearted service to God will not keep it And will not keep it to the end. Now what does that mean? Well, here's number three, the third point. And that comes in verse 35. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not unto covetousness. The Word of God keeps us moving. Or we could say advancing. Or we could say making progress. See, when we're serving God with a whole heart, then the teaching of the Lord, the understanding that He gives, keeps us moving toward the end. You hear this in the word, it's a single word in the Hebrew, make me to go. That word means first to lead or to be brought about, then to tread or to march forth. Isaiah 42, 16. I will bring the blind by a way they know not. I will lead them in paths they have not known. To lead and to bring is the same Hebrew word. God is going to bring the blind. He's going to bring the remnant of Israel from Babylon to Jerusalem. So what does that mean for them? They're going to tread a pathway. They're going to march forth. They're going to make progress from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. All the way to the end destination. So the implication of being led is that we go. The implication of being brought is that we are marching forth. We're moving. But notice the basis of his request and the base, basis of the movement. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments because or since therein I delight. Now that's an odd way to reason, isn't it? Because I delight in your commandments... Therefore, then, make me to move. Lead me to progress. Lead me onward. Where? In the pathway of commandments. See? A whole heart is a heart that delights in the commandments of God. A half-heart... Is a heart that takes no delight in the commandments of God, whereby that person will not keep it, the commandments, to the end. And so that is the connection between I will observe it with a whole heart. A whole heart is not a, a, a heart free from sin. It's not a heart free from struggle. It's a heart that's fully planted in one camp, in one camp alone, the, the camp of God. And with a whole heart then, the basis of making progress to the end will be your delight in the commandments of God. Now, why would anybody, us included, delight in being commanded? I don't ever recall in my life, especially as a young man, especially as a boy in my parents' house, whenever I was commanded to clean my room, I just never felt an overwhelming pleasure and delight in the command. Now maybe you're different. Maybe you have, but that just wasn't part of my psyche. See, we have to remember that the delight is not in the commands as an end. It's in the commander who makes the commands. Look again at verse 2. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. It's the Word of God. That's equivalent to commands. And that what? Seek Him with the whole heart. Give me understanding. I will keep your law. I will observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of your commandments, for therein I delight. What does He delight in? He delights in the God that He seeks that then overflows in a pathway of keeping commands. And so the commandment in and of itself is not what the psalmist delights in. It's the God, it's the commander-in-chief that he seeks. And therefore, when the commander makes a command to love, the commander is to love what he says. Because what he says is good and righteous and lovely. And so we cannot disconnect the Redeemer, the commander, from the commands that he makes Do you delight in Jesus Christ as your commander? The one who commands. The one who gives commandments. Without delight. And we understand that every moment of our existence is not one of delight. But what's the point of the psalm? The end. See, If there's no delight in the commander... You won't make it to the end. Is delight necessary in keeping commands? Yes, it is. Because without it, you will just have external compliance for a period of time. Because the heart is seeking to delight in something. Isaiah 55 verse 2. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Hearken unto me. Listen to me, God says. And what does he say in verse 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon me while he is near. When you seek the Lord, what do you expect to find? You expect your soul to delight itself in fatness. So when you seek the Lord and your soul delights itself in fatness, the upshot is you're on the pathway of keeping commands to the very end by faith. Without a whole heart, without delight, you're going to take the off-ramp. You're going to take the exit. Because your heart is seeking to delight in something. So that's why he makes it the basis. Since I delight in your commands, make me to go in that pathway. Because if he had no delight in the commands, would he be on the pathway? No. Now the... Connection is verse 36. Incline my heart into thy testimonies and not to covetousness. So when we're delighting in the commander and his commands on the pathway of obedience, our hearts are being inclined, influenced, stretched out, bowing down to those same commandments and God himself. And the upshot is we are not being inclined to covetousness covetousness is the off-ramp. Covetousness is the exit from the pathway of keeping commands. And so, how is he going with a, to, to be a wholehearted uh, service to God in such a way that he stays on the pathway to the end because the Word of God is going to keep him there because the Word of God is going to be his delight that keeps him from covetousness. Does anybody struggle with that? Covetousness could be just related to money. can could mean gain or profit in a violent way, using force. It could mean gain or profit in an unjust way, fraudulent deception. Or it can just mean selfish gain. See? When the heart is inclined toward God with delight... That helps us to resist being inclined toward gain that is selfish in nature. It's just for me. See, we cannot love, and the singular commandment that Jesus reduces all the commands to is loving your neighbor. We cannot love on the pathway of keeping that command if our hearts are inclined to selfish gain. It never happened. And you won't make it to the end. We need God to teach us. We need understanding. We need this delight as He reveals Himself by means of the Word. And that revelation then will be the the catalyst to help keep us from stretching our hearts, bowing down, and moving out in the pathway of covetousness. Now look at a few places this is said. Right in the very Decalogue in the Ten Commandments, we see that delight or love must precede keeping commands. Now, we understand that Jesus did this perfectly for us. So, we understand what the law is to bring us to Christ. So, when we look at the law, we see Jesus satisfied the law for us. Now, by faith, we want to keep God's commands. So, what does it say? God is keeping mercy. He's showing mercy to thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. Because love is a prerequisite for obedience. Whoever loved anything and had no delight in it. Your favorite food. Whoever loved a food and ate it with no pleasure. Whoever loves a vacation spot and goes there with no delight. Whoever loves a book, a sports team, and watches and reads the book with absolutely no pleasure. To some degree, varying degrees, whatever we love, we delight in it. God shows mercy to thousands of those that love Him because His mercy produces the love. And what's the upshot of that love? Keeping commandments. We could apply this to Jesus Christ Himself. His delight. His love. He would say in John 14.30. He said, "...Henceforth I will not talk much with you." He's in the upper room discourse. He's speaking to the disciples. He's about to go to the crucifixion. "...Henceforth I will not talk much with you. For the Prince of this world is coming. And He has nothing in me. But that the world may know what? That I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandment, even so, arise, let us go forth. You see, love preceding the commandment, and Jesus speaks of himself. What does he mean? The prince of the world is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of the darkness of this world. He's coming, and he's coming for a reason. He's coming through betrayal and deception and lying and murder and through Judas Iscariot. But he has nothing in Christ. The word nothing is echo, which means to hold or to possess. There's nothing there that he can grab a hold of. There's nothing in Christ that the prince of the darkness and deception can possess in Christ. Nothing. Two reasons why. One, he's the Son of God, right? He's holy. He's pure. He's harmless. He's undefiled. But secondly, He's the Son of Man. He is every bit as much a human being as you are, yet without sin. What is in Christ that means the Prince of this world had no hold on Him? Could not seize Him, could not possess Him, that is the Prince of this world. Love. But that the world may know that I love the Father. The devil could not tempt him, persuade him, or seize him. Because he was so filled with delight in the love of God. He is the commander that kept the law. He's the one that loved God and kept his commandments. He's the one delighted in the law of the Lord, Psalm 40. Sheer and pure delight. Why? Because he was so filled with the love of God and the delight of God that what did he do? He got up and he went to the cross which was the commandment of God according to John 10, 15. I lay down my life that I may take it again. This commandment. The crucifixion. He's going to lay it down and take it again. This commandment I received of my Father. What kept him to the end of the commandment? that's That's what we're talking about. Keep it to the end. The word keeps us by teaching us. God the teacher keeps us by what? Moving us to the end. What moved Jesus all the way to the end? Love and His experience of that love according to John 15. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now notice Jesus how did Jesus keep the command of the cross and keep all the commands of the law? By abiding in the love of God. What are we talking about? Delighting in God's love in such a way that we're not inclined to covetousness, which is selfish gain, but we're inclined to the love of God, which is our delight. So, what does Jesus say in John 15? Even as I kept His commands because I abide in His love, these things have I spoken unto you that your, my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. So Jesus, by His own testimony, is telling us what? Abiding in God's love for me, Jesus speaking, was sheer delight and joy. And out of that delight, what did Jesus do? He kept the commandments all the way through the end of the cross. Now, yes, He's the Son of God, but what is Jesus saying to us now? If we abide in His love, if we delight in His love, if we delight in the Redeemer and delight in His commands, because that's a reflection of the Redeemer, what's the upshot? We're inclined, we're influenced to the testimonies and away from selfish gain. Does anybody have a struggle with selfishness here? What day do you not... What day do I not? What is going to help me? Can I just delight on my own? No. Ask. It shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Will not the Father give the Holy Ghost to everyone that asketh Him? And He is the agent of love. And so the Word of God keeps us moving to the end because it keeps us in the love of God as we keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude. That's why Jude said to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, not twice delivered once. Why? Because you're preserved in Christ Jesus. What is the pathway of that preservation? The Word of God, the faith delivered to the saints. What does the faith do for us? Keep yourselves In the love of God. What is the experience of God's love? What should be the experience of God's love? Boring, wretched delight. And that's the word the psalmist used. Make me to go in the path of your commandments, because therein I delight. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and away from covetousness. How is God going to incline you away from covetousness and to the testimonies? As you go to the testimony of God and the Holy Spirit, through the textbook, through the teaching, through the understanding, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, what happens? God will give you delight. Remember, it was the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus concerning the law. Because right built into the law, the tenth commandment is what? Thou shalt not covet. The book ends on the law. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt have no gods before me. Covetousness is idolatry. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. What is idolatry? Having gods before God. So inherent in the law itself is not to covet. And what's the summation of the law? To love God. So here's this young ruler. He's eager. He comes. He falls down before Jesus and says, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That's God. Now some people think Jesus is saying, Well, I'm not God. That's not what he's saying. He thinks he's good. The rich young ruler. There's only one good God. And Jesus is God. And so the ruler has a perverted sense of his goodness because there's no one that does good. And Jesus says, you know the law. And then He quotes the second tablet relating to neighbor. Honor your mother, father, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. But He leaves off covetousness and He leaves off the first great command to love God. So the rich young ruler thinks he's loved his neighbor well. All these I've kept from my youth up. Jesus said, "One thing you lack." Just one colossal massive thing. Now we already know if Jesus leaves off the first tablet, that's what he's lacking. So he will address his heart with the first tablet or the issue of loving God in three ways. One thing but expressed it in three ways. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, take up your cross and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he went away sorrowful. Do you know why? He was a covetous man that loved his money and his glory and his own self-righteousness. What did he lack? He lacked the love of God. He lacked delight in God. So he shattered the whole law just like you and I have. So when we ask God to keep us, we ask Him to teach us and to give us understanding, we ask Him to make us to go in the path of His commandments, we are asking Him to make His love our delight. We're asking Him to fulfill our longings. Because without delight, without a whole heart, we take an exit ramp. you ever taken an exit ramp? you ever decided to take the off-ramp? Why did you do that? Something attracted, something you loved, something you wanted, something you desired, something gave you pleasure, and you took the exit. Brings us to the next point. It keeps us from beholding vanity. Now we can connect the next verse to the the previous two, and they, they all kind of flow in thought, but we'll take the next two verses together. Verse 37, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Stab is thy word into thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. The word of God keeps us from beholding vanity. Beholding means to gaze at with intent and interest. You know, you can just... Stare at somebody and gaze at them, and you know, your parents always said, Stop staring. You're like, Oh, I don't know what I was doing. Or you can gaze upon something with intent, purpose, aim, and great interest. So the psalmist understands his tendency to behold vanity, so he asks the Lord to turn away his eyes from gazing upon it. Upon vanity, what is vanity? It's futility, uselessness, worthlessness, valuelessness. It actually means not accomplishing the intended purpose. Turn away mine eyes from gazing with intent and purpose on an object called vanity because that object will not bring about the purpose that I'm gazing for. And what is that? Psalm 24, 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in His presence? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, and that hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Same word, vanity. Lift up the soul, however, means to be directed by desire. Who will stand in the presence of God? Whoever has not directed their desires toward an object above God that will be futile, purposeless, valueless, and will not bring the intended goal. And what is that goal? To satisfy your desires. That's what covetousness is trying to gain. He's looking, he's searching for some object that will satisfy his desires. The psalmist understands his proneness to that. So he says, Lord, turn away mine eyes from gazing on vanity in such a way that my heart is taken by it. Now there's two ways you can do that. First, you can turn your eyes away physically, right? In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan speaks of pilgrim and faithful going into Vanity Fair, the city. Oh, the worldly pleasures that were there. Now they understood, the townspeople, that pilgrim and faithful, they spoke another language and they looked different. But the thing that irritated them the most is they would not take the goods of Vanity Fair. So they told them, look upon them, look upon them. And Bunyan uses this text. And they close their ears, faithful and pilgrim, and they run away saying, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Now sometimes that's the first thing we need to do. Just close the eyes to it physically. It takes about five seconds for your lust to be enticed. You've got about five seconds to turn away your eyes from beholding vanity that's unlawful that we shouldn't be beholding. You don't have hours. You don't have minutes. You've got about seconds to turn away before lust is enticed and conceived and locks you in. So if we're going to ask God to turn away our eyes from beholding To gazing upon it with interest, we've got to close our eyes to it. That's the first line of defense. But vanity is much broader than just things unlawful. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.2, All is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity. Well, now we've got a problem because to turn away your physical eyes means to go through life with your eyes shut. Or blinders on, or looking at the ground, or looking at the sky. That won't work. So even with lawful things, things that are good, we have to turn away our spiritual eyes from gazing, beholding vanity, directing our desire towards things that will not accomplish what we think they will deliver on our desires, right? Now Solomon speaks in Ecclesiastes of things that are good and right to participate in. Under the sun. The point is, he's disconnected his life from the God that's over the sun. And therefore, everything he beholds is vanity because he's looked upon it in such a way that he expected the wine, the women, and the wealth to deliver what it never could deliver. It never could. So, part of the battle here in... Turning away our eyes from beholding vanity is to understand that it's vanity. Just to know that. As a songwriter, pinned those words, Fade, fade, each earthly joy, Jesus is mine. Perishing things of clay, born but one brief day. Pass from my heart away, Jesus is mine. The literal translation of the two words turn away is pass away. Pass away from my eyes from beholding vanity. If we understood that everything we hold, everything we see, everything we experience in this world is but clay, even when it's okay to feel the clay, experience the clay, and own the clay, how much harder will it be to be taken in by vanity, thinking that clay can satisfy your soul? Treat it like clay, use it like clay. But remember, it's born but one brief day. Jesus is mine. And so we've got to close our eyes physically, but we must close our eyes spiritually by knowing that it's clay. How do we do that? Quicken thou me in thy way. And then verse 38 along with it. Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. We need God to establish His word to us. See, that's going to help us not to be taken in by things of clay. Now, what does that mean? Establish means to confirm it. To confirm the Word means to show it to be accurate and true. Now, what is he saying? God's Word is settled in heaven. There's no doubt about it. As silver is purified seven times, the Word of God is pure. That is, it's settled, it's sure, it's going to happen. What the psalmist is asking in turning away his eyes from beholding vanity, is, Lord, fulfill your word. Do what you said you will do. David said this when God spoke of His mercy. He said, establish your word. Do what you said you will do. God's okay with that. You can say that to God. Lord, fulfill the promises of your word. Do what you said you would do. Now there are some prerequisites we've got to think about. When we say that to God. First of all, notice He says, establish thy word unto thy servant. Now some people want to say, well, you establish your word first. You you show me and then I'll be your servant. It's not going to work. The psalmist is the servant of God. He's committed. He's on the pathway of commandment keeping. He's delighting in the word. He says, confirm your word to your servant. Fulfill your promises. I'm serving. There's no off ramp. Are you a servant of the Lord? Well, you can't expect God to confirm a promise to you if you've not... Committed yourself to serving Him. So first, we've got to be devoted to serving. Secondly, we've got to be devoted with the right expectation. What do you expect from the Word? Do you know what the Word promises? See, sometimes we approach the Word of God like an encyclopedia set. Young people probably don't never seen those books. You have a paper to do in school, and uh, you got all these books, and there's a spine that has all the letters on it. So you go to the letter M for marriage. You say, Well, the book's going to help me. Divine solution for a divine problem. And you go and you look at the passage on marriage. That's a misuse of the book. Yes, the Bible gives us divine solutions, but that's not who we're looking for. We're seeking the Lord. We're seeking the Redeemer. The Bible is a book of redemption about a Redeemer. And every line of the book is about Him. If you're going to get to the divine solution, you've got to get to the Redeemer first. And then what are your expectations for marriage? You say, I had no idea this was going to happen. Why not? Really? You didn't read the book. I thought God promised us all kinds of love and happiness. And where? Parents get frustrated. feel like a failure. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Why not? If you're going to ask God to fulfill His Word, you've got to know what the promises are. So our expectations are in alignment with God's Word. We get frustrated. We get skeptical we start doubting because well, it's not working out like I thought. What were your expectations? Were they in line with what God's Word said? What has He promised you? Sky's always blue? Flower-strewn pathways all your life through? No, He is not. So aligning our expectations with God's Word... We see that God will confirm His Word, His Word, His promises, as we align and devote ourselves to what He expects and what He promised. See, if you don't know what He promised, then your expectations are out of alignment. Devoted to the right interpretation. I was reading a man one time that said, I'll never pray to God again. Never will. The Bible's not true. I read on. He said, John 15 says, if if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and should be given to you. He said, I did it. I asked whatever I wanted. Never got a single thing I asked for. What's the problem? Wrong interpretation, wrong expectation. I'd like to ask the man, did did you hide his word in your heart? Did, Did you treasure it up there? I can tell by the article he's going to say, not a single time. He was just an unbeliever trying to scoff at the word of God. Unbiblical expectations about the word. Unbiblical interpretation leads to what? Skepticism, doubt. You've got to be devoted to God's expectations. You've got to be devoted to God's interpretation, which takes work in the textbook, just like work in the textbook in human universities. Some of the subjects are just not that easy. But we have the divine teacher. We have God to ask. We have God to incline us. We have God to make us. We have God as the source of grace that will help us. He will confirm His promises. He will make them true. He will make them sure. And then we've got to be devoted to waiting. Luke one thirty eight, Mary had just been told, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, overshadow thee. And she was going to have a son. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. She responded to Gabriel like this. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, which means what? Servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Do what you have said, God. Establish your word to your servant. When did God establish it? At least nine months later. See, The promises of God are right on schedule. You've got to be devoted to waiting. Sometimes skepticism and doubt enters in because we expected God to work something out on our timetable. And He's got you on the timetable of sanctification. The timetable of holiness. And ultimately, the ultimate timetable, the fulfillment of all promises in Christ, yes and amen, is the timetable of when you reach glory. But along the way, there are many promises God is going to confirm to you. But it's going to be His timing. Do you know the timing? Do you know the expectation? Do you have the right interpretation? And then you've got to be devoted to God's fear. Now when God establishes His word to His servant, it will increase His fear, but as a servant, He fears God. So we should ask God, Lord, increase our fear. Increase our fear. And when God increases our fear, He's going to increase your wisdom, right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. How wise you will be. If God increases your fear of Him, if you're devoted to God's fear, He's going to increase Himself as your treasure. Proverbs 2. If you seek her wisdom as silver and search for her as buried treasure, then you'll find what? The fear of the Lord. When are you going to find it? When you start seeking and searching, why haven't you found it? You've not started. What's your expectation? Well, I expect to find it without searching. Wrong expectation. When God increases your fear, when you're devoted to His fear, when He confirms your word, you're going to treasure His word more. When God increases your fear as you're devoted to His fear, when He establishes your word to you, you're going to increase in confidence The fear of the Lord is, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his people have a place of refuge. Oh, how safe you're going to be from taking an off ramp. How secure, how safe you'll be in the fear of the Lord because there's strong confidence. And it'll increase your happiness, right? In the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. And what is a fountain in Jeremiah 2? It's a fountain to drink from it's a fountain of spiritual happiness when god increases your fear he increases your wisdom him as a treasure your confidence and your happiness through the book through the textbook and that's all spiritual and so we must be devoted to his fear and when he establishes his word to us what happens it's toward thy fear the word devoted was added in italics so who is to thy fear Toward thy fear. And then, lastly, keeps us from dropping out. See, the greatest danger we could have is dropping out of the divine school of God where He's teaching, giving understanding, making us go, clining us, turning us. And then the psalmist says, Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed After your precepts, quicken me in your righteousness. Now, he could dread reproach from two different angles. One, the the reproach of confessing Christ, or the reproach of righteousness that Peter mentions. That's something to be dreaded, even though the Bible speaks of it as something to rejoice in. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. Rejoice! We could dread that. It's it's shame and disgrace heaped on us. The other kind is the shame and disgrace of personal failure. That could be what he dreads. We're not sure which way to go, but I'm going to lean towards the latter because of the statement, for your judgments are good. Whatever judgments, decisions of God toward us, they're not burdensome. What iniquity of your fathers found in me that they should go after vanity and are in vain? What did I do to them? Did I lay heavy burdens on them? No, God's commandments, His judgments are not grievous, 1 John 5. They're light. He dreads the shame and reproach of personal failure that would bring upon the Gospel. Now if you know your weakness this morning, if you know your tendency, if you know yourself, to be a sinner, you could have the same dread we should have. See, when you fear the name of God, our fear is to reproach our Father. To live in such a way that we would not show Christ's blood valuable is to reproach the gospel. That's his dread, that's his fear. So, what do we do with that? Personal failure. What does Peter do with it? Denied his Lord, reproached the name of Christ, that worthy name by which he was called. And then when his eyes locked with the Savior's, he wept bitterly. Peter obviously was in danger of taking an off-ramp. How do you know that? Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired thee to sift thee as wheat. He wants to destroy He wants you to take a permanent off-ramp. Personal failure. I'm no good. I, I've denied my Lord. I'm just going to take an off ramp. What did, what did Jesus do? Now here's where you have to lay hold on the gospel. Again and again. The three women come to the grave, the, the stone. They didn't know what they were going to do because it was so heavy they couldn't roll it away. Well, Jesus had already rolled it away so they could look in. The angel that was sitting where Jesus had lain said, He is not here, he is risen as he has said. Go tell my disciples and you tell Peter. You tell him. What do you want us to tell him? The gospel. I'm arisen. He's come up out of the grave. What do we do with personal failure? What do you do when you deny the Lord? You lay hold on the gospel. The same word, turn away, means to pass by. Micah seven eighteen says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Because he delights to show mercy. Pass by is the same way. Turn away my reproach. He has reproached him. Peter did reproach him. How can God just pardon and pass it by? It was passed upon Christ. All your transgressions, all your personal failure, the times we've lived inconsistently in a manner that defamed the matchless name of the Savior that you love. How can God pardon you? He passed by your sin just like He passed by the Israelites because of the blood on the doorpost and lintels. This is the Passover. He's passed over you. What the psalmist needs to do with his dread is go back to the gospel again and again and again. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. Your judgments are good. Behold, then he closes on this note. See, Lord, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Now this is the first time he doesn't say revive me in the word. He says righteousness. What does he mean? It can mean through or by means is righteousness. Or in a manner that is right. And how would God answer that in a right way? You said that to God, Lord, I have longed after Your precepts. Quicken me in a way that's righteous. How would He answer that prayer? Well, the first way is He would answer it for His namesake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. What is a path of righteousness? Anything He does for His namesake. We know that path is the path of keeping commands. The point is, it's for His namesake. John 7, 18. Jesus said, He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeks the glory of him that sent him, the same is true. And in him, in who? The one that seeks his glory. There's no unrighteousness in him. Which means he's righteous. Who's righteous? The one that seeks his glory. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Who is He? God. What's the point? When God seeks His glory, He is genuine and He is not unright to do so. He's righteous. That still doesn't answer the question. It just tells us it must be for His glory. must be for His honor. He's not going to answer that unless He honors the gospel, which is a revelation of His righteousness, and He honors His name. Now how would He do that? Well, if you long for something... What's your expectation? It's to crave something you don't yet possess. It's to long for something you don't have. See, when God revives you in a way that is right for His namesake, for His glory's sake, He's going to satisfy your longings with His namesake and with His glory. He can have confidence in this request. God cannot deny Himself. If He does it in any way apart from the Gospel, it wouldn't be right. If He does it in any way that's not for His name's sake, it wouldn't be right. How can God satisfy sinners who have failed in a way that glorifies His name? The Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a revelation of His righteousness. Or we could say it like the Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Is that right? Glorify God, that's right. How is that right? What's God going to do with your longings? He's going to bring you into the enjoyment of His glory forever and ever and ever. What are we talking about? How the Word of God keeps us To the end, it keeps us by teaching us and giving us understanding as we go to the textbook and learn it and use it and apply it. It keeps us moving in the right direction as we delight and we're inclined to it and away from covetousness. It keeps us from beholding vanity, from being taken by it. Not just looking at it, by being taken by it. And it keeps us from dropping out. Have you ever felt like dropping out? Sadly, people do drop out of school. They get behind. They get disillusioned. They lose interest. They lose sight of the end. The gain, All school is about gain, isn't it? Who goes to university and i are not pursuing, pursuing the end of gain? Only the person who, somebody makes them go, right? I didn't want to go. I had to. Anybody that willingly goes to university is going for the gain. First, either monetary gain. The perception is that I'll have a greater potential of earning through university. Now, you can debate whether that's true or not, but that's what the thinking is, perception. The other reason may not be money. It may be personal fulfillment. No, it's not about the money to be. I know that through university I'll get the credentials to be fulfilled in doing the job that I enjoy. All education is aiming for gain and reward. What's God's education aiming for? The reward of Christ through the Word. May God bless us to be kept as we keep ourselves connected to the Word. As we join ourselves, stick to it and bring ourselves. Crying out all the time, Lord, help me. Teach me. Incline me. Make me. Turn me in your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and we just want to pray with the psalmist. We feel our own impotency. We feel, Lord, that even though loving You, trusting You, having been converted by Your grace, we feel still our tendency to turn toward covetousness and selfish gain. Lord, help us, rescue us, deliver us, For your namesake and in your righteousness. Quicken us. Give us understanding. Turn us. Keep us. Make us to go in the pathway. Pathway of delight. Lord, we're asking you, we're calling on you to do which we cannot do apart from you. Although we love you. Although you've shown us your glory. We are not able. So Lord, make this a reality in everyone's life in this room. Make it a growing reality. Make it a reality that starts this week. Anybody who's not been using the textbook, may they start this week. For anybody who's not been going to the place where we find understanding and the teaching that you do through the book, may we start today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of rescue and grace. Today, Lord, may it be today. Bless us not to be like the James 1 man that has yet heard another sermon and goes out forgets what manner of man he was. May we continue in the perfect law of liberty and find the blessing in it. We ask you all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.